So a couple of years ago, when I had the, the opportunity to address uh, this crowd, of course, some of you might not have been here and some, some who were here might not be here now, but it was also the uh, week right before Tisha B'Av and I spoke about uh, some of the elements, some of the themes of Tisha B'Av and the causes of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And in that class, I spoke about a few stories that are famous stories related to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, stories that I felt really capture uh, what we're supposed to learn from the experience of the morning of Tisha B'Av. This year, I'd like to focus on a story that is much, is much less spoken about, one that is uh, not as well known, not as famous. The stories that I spoke about last time, I think, were more familiar, more popular, better known. I'm going to speak about a story tonight that also appears in the Talmud, but is a, uh, a lesser known story and maybe a more provocative story. I'm not sure. You guys can be the judge of that. I just wanted to open the discussion by saying that Tisha B'Av is a day which we call a moed. It is called a holiday. The rabbis say it's ikrim moed. It's called a holiday, Tisha B'Av. And of course, when you think about Tisha B'Av, it seems to have everything the opposite of what a holiday would be. When we think of a holiday, we think of a day that you eat and drink. We think of a day that you socialize. We think of a day that you study Torah. All of these things are prohibited on Tisha B'Av. Socializing, eating, drinking. We think of a day that we recite Hallel. Obviously, we don't recite Hallel on Tisha B'Av. It seems like an anti-holiday. It seems like the furthest thing from a holiday, and yet the rabbis say that Tisha B'Av is considered a holiday, and, and in the future, when the Mashiach comes, hopefully very soon, we'll be celebrating on Tisha B'Av. Now, that seems odd, because in theory, we would think we would choose a better day. Why take a day that has so many negative associations and make that the day that we would celebrate after the coming of the Mashiach? And yet this is what the rabbis say. They say it's a holiday. That's why we don't say tachanun, the prayer tachanun that we normally omit on days that are happy days, like Rosh Chodesh, or if there's a Brit, or if there's any other kind of a celebration, we omit the tachanun during the week. We omit it on Tisha B'Av, even though you would think Tisha B'Av is the saddest day, and we should be saying prayers that are considered to be uh, of a... Uh, a more somber tone, we don't say it on Tisha B'Av. Why? Because it has an element of a holiday. Now, what did the rabbis see in Tisha B'Av that reflects the concept of a holiday? When, as I mentioned before, it seems like the anti-holiday. It seems to have everything not to do, everything the reverse of a holiday. So in what way is it a holiday? Well, if we reflect on what really a holiday is about, a holiday is a day that we use to come closer to Hashem. The essence of a holiday is as a day that we utilize to reflect on events in our history, to think about lessons of history, lessons of events that have occurred to the Jewish people over the past several thousand years, and to extract from them lessons and better understanding of the ways of Hashem so we come closer to Hashem. That's what every holiday really is. Think about beginning from Pesach. The story of Pesach, the story of the Exodus, of the servitude in Egypt, the salvation, the redemption from Egypt, all of that is to teach us about God, to teach us the wisdom that we are able to extract from those events that we then apply to ourselves and it brings us closer to Hashem and we celebrate that closeness to Hashem that we have thereby 
deepened and enriched by reflecting on the events of the day. And the same is true of Shavuot. Shavuot is the day we think about the importance of the giving of the Torah, what it means that Hashem gave us the Torah. There are so many different angles to view it, but at the end of the day, the point is to inspire us to a greater closeness to Hashem through understanding these events more deeply and at a, at a higher level. And that's why we come back to the holidays again and again, because the way that you understood the holiday when you were 10 years old is not the way that you understand it when you are 15. And the way you understood when you're 15 is not the way that you understand it now. And the way you understand it 10 years from now, if you continue to learn and to grow, will not be the same as what you understand today. Because we're constantly growing as we review these lessons and we review these events and we come back to these moments in our history, they come back to life because the lessons of those events are eternal lessons. They're not lessons that we left in the past. They're lessons that are just as poignant and impactful today. It's just that we have to constantly return to them and revisit them in order to deepen our appreciation of them and raise ourselves to a higher level. And if you think about Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av is also a holiday in that sense. And you see that Tisha B'Av is a day that we focus on events in our history as well. We focus on tragic events in our history. But Judaism always has just one goal in mind, which is how can we become better people? How can we deepen our understanding of Hashem, come closer to Hashem and to one another as, a, as members of the nation of God? How can we become more united, closer to God, wiser, more righteous? That's the goal of every holiday. And there are two ways, there are two avenues to reach that goal. One is through reflecting on the brightest and the best and the most exciting and uplifting moments in our history and understanding what those mean. And another way to arrive at that same destination is by reflecting on the dark chapters in our history, by reflecting on the tragedies that we also bear accountability and responsibility for and trying to understand the ways of God, what we call the Midat Haddin of Hashem. The other holidays are the Midat Rachamim of Hashem, the mercy of God, God's providence in lifting us up assisting us, helping us, building us. And Midat Adin, the judgment of God that's revealed on Tisha B'Av, is when we reflect on the events that remind us of the distance between us and God, of the sort of the barrier that was created between us and Hashem, of the absence of Hashem's normal presence, or what should be His normal presence from our lives. This is looking at the dark side of our relationship with Hashem, you could say, but it's also an aspect of the ways of God how God judges us and when he treats us harshly and we see disaster and tragedy and punishment, unfortunately, in our history, that's also an element of our understanding of the ways of God and it's meant to bring us closer to God. And that's why you see that if you really peel back one more level, one more layer of the, uh, you know, of the picture, you see that Tisha B'Av is really structured as a holiday because it doesn't have Halil, but you know what it has? It doesn't have Torah reading that is the regular Torah reading, but it has a Torah reading that reflects the themes of Tisha B'Av. That's a learning of Torah that's, that's keyed into the themes of Tisha B'Av. It doesn't have Halil, but it has Kinot. Kinot are like the opposite of Halil, but they're similar to Halil. Halil is uplifting, inspiring, positive, reflecting on our blessings. Kinot is a little bit, you know, it's obviously somber, and it's, it, it's negative, and it's depressing, but it's reflecting on the absence of blessing in our lives as a result of the exile and the tragedies that have befallen us for thousands of years. But it's sort of an anti-Halil, if you really think about it. And the same is true with every element. There's a Megillah, 
on every, associated with every holiday. There's Megillat Esther for Purim, there's, Megi, there's Megillat Ruth that's associated with Shavuot, there's Megillat Shior Shirim that's associated with Pesach, and there's Megillat Kohelet that's associated with Sukkot. All holidays have a Megillat that's associated with them, and there's a Megillat associated with Tisha B'Av as well, which is Megillat Echa. So you see that it has all the trappings of a holiday because it is a type of a holiday. If a holiday is understood not just in the simplistic sense as a day that you're happy, okay, but as a special day of reflection that draws us closer to Hashem, to a deeper understanding of Hashem, and to a hopefully a, uh, a, a better sense of where we stand in terms of Hashem's ultimate plan. That is the goal of every holiday, and in that way it's a moed, it's truly a holiday. And that's why we omit tachanun on that day, because we are gaining in our relationship with Hashem, even on Tisha B'Av. That's the incredible thing. We're gaining, but sometimes they say no pain, no gain, right? Usually they say that when you go to the gym, right? But, uh, but it, it, it's also true when it comes to spiritual gain, that sometimes it's through reflecting on the difficult things. And I think that anybody here who's been through hard times, maybe you've been through difficulties personally, maybe financially, maybe in, jo- in your jobs, maybe in school, maybe in, 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 in relationships with, with family or with spouse or whoever it is, we've all been through difficult times, but we know that those difficult times are actually the greatest learning experiences. Those difficult times often are often the best opportunities to have breakthroughs in our personal growth. And that's exactly what Tisha B'Av is supposed to be. That's why the rabbis say, it's Tisha B'Av that the Mashiach is going to be celebrated in the future. Because it's through the insights of Tisha B'Av that we're going to build ourselves up and be worthy of the Mashiach coming. Now I wanted to mention, like I said, I'm going to speak about a story that's a lesser known story. Some of you may have heard it. It's a story that appears in the Gemara and it's often told on, you know, in connection with Tisha B'Av because it's one of the stories that is associated with the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. But I don't think it's as well known. And it's a very sad story. We, I think that the, probably the most commonly known story is the story of Kamtsan Bar Kamtsa, which is told and retold and interpreted in many, many different ways. I'm going to tell you a story about people that we don't know their names, actually. In the story, they are anonymous. But it's a story about a master and an apprentice, actually. The apprentice, now in those days, apprentices oftentimes were very wealthy. You would think, oh, the master is going to be the one that has a lot of money and the student will be the one that uh, doesn't have money, but it was the opposite. A lot of times very wealthy families would hire, let's say, a craftsman, and in this case, the Talmud tells us that it was a carpenter, he was a master carpenter, and he had an apprentice, and they would hire a master craftsman basically to train their, uh, you know, their son or uh, in some uh, in some area in some craft. Now, they, I don't, I specifically say son because back then women didn't usually learn trades. Um, although I, I suppose that for a seamstress or something like that, that would have been a possibility back then. Now, obviously, ladies have lots of opportunity, but back then it was typically boys that would go under the tutelage of some ma- master craftsman. And it turned out that there was a certain apprentice who was probably a wealthy guy and from a wealthy family. And he had a master. He had a, somebody was teaching him carpentry, the story goes. And it so happened that this master craftsman had a very beautiful wife, beautiful young wife, and the student had his eye on this beautiful young wife. Why are you smiling? The apprentice, you know, he goes to, to the master and he sees this beautiful young wife and, you know, he, he, he starts to plot and he starts to scheme. And it turns out that this master craftsman is a master craftsman, but not a master financial planner. 
So he gets into a lot of financial difficulties and he's in debt and he needs some money. He needs a loan. So who does he turn to? He's telling his student about his financial woes and the student says, oh, no problem. Send your wife over to my place. I'll be happy to give her the money that you need. No problem. So he sends her over. She doesn't come back for three days. Strange, what happened to the wife? After three days, the master craftsman says, where's my wife? Why did it take him three days? I don't know. It took him three days to re- because he was eating the same gundi from three nights ago. He starts to realize there was nothing left in the fridge. He said, I need my wife back. I don't know. He starts to go, go look for his wife. He comes to the student's house, knocks on the door. They couldn't have lived that far away from each other back then, so it wasn't like it was a big deal to go check where his wife was. The student says, oh, your wife, you know, she came here and I let her leave immediately. You know, uh, but I heard that some guys on the street, you know, they, they abused her, they took her, they, you know, she, she was involved in some illicit stuff with some guys on the street and that's why she never came home. So the master craftsman said, what do you think I should do? My wife did that kind of thing. She went with some guys on the street. What should I do? He said, you know, honestly, I have to tell you the truth. That's, that's really uh, very dishonorable what she did. I, I think you should divorce her. So the master craftsman says, I have one problem. As you know, my whole issue, the whole reason I sent her to begin with was because I needed money. I'm already in debt. If I divorce her, how am I going to pay the cost of the divorce? Back then, it wasn't paying lawyers. It was paying the ketubah that she had to pay. Right? Because the husband has an obligation in the ketubah to pay his wife in the event of a divorce. That's one of the conditions of a Jewish marriage. It's very expensive. I don't have that kind of money. I'm already borrowing money. How am I going to borrow more money? The student said, no problem. I'll lend you the money for that too. I'll lend you the money for that too. So this, the teacher goes, immediately divorces his wife, takes the money from the student to pay the ketubah. And of course, what does the student do? Marries the wife right away. Now, the craftsman is now in debt doubly to the student because he originally needed a loan to pay off his other debts. Now he took a loan to pay off the ketubah. So what did the student do? How is he going to pay off the debt? He said, no problem. You can be my butler. You can be my butler in my house. So he took his former teacher, and the former teacher becomes basically a servant in his house. And the story in the Talmud goes that the husband and wife, you know, his former wife that was basically stolen from him, you could say, and his former student who manipulated the whole situation, are drinking their wine at the table as the master is serving them and his tears are dripping from his eyes into the cups of wine as the the new husband and wife are drinking them. And it says at that moment, Hashem said, that's it. Bet HaMikdash is going to be destroyed. At that moment, the decree was sealed. There are several stories like this about final decrees being sealed, but it's a very disturbing story. It's a very sad story. And I think that part of the sadness of the story, it's at many different levels, and there's many different questions we can ask about the story. The obvious one that I mentioned before is what did he think was going on with his wife for the past three days, that he didn't come to find her. And we have to suspect and we have to wonder 
was the wife also maybe, you know, kind of involved in this? Was the husband kind of involved in this? Meaning, did the, real, did the teacher maybe know that his student kind of had a thing for the wife and it was not such a kosher arrangement to begin with that he knew he was sending his wife into something that was inappropriate to begin with? And then the student said, no, 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 I didn't do that. I sent her out, but she went with somebody else. Okay, but the husband himself obviously was looking the other way. The wife clearly embraced her relationship with this new, younger, richer husband. Okay? So it's just a very twisted story. But what really I think is the nail in the coffin, the last nail in the coffin of the story that makes it so sad is the idea that the former student and the former wife are sitting there enjoying their life while this poor teacher who was once the husband of one and the teacher of the other one is crying into their cups and they're just drinking their wine and they're totally indifferent to the suffering. Not indifferent, actually, I think is the main point, actually. It's not that they're indifferent to it. Somebody who would arrange that, why couldn't he just say, go get a job somewhere else and pay me? Why would he submit, why would he subject the former husband and former teacher to such humiliation and to such a terrible painful arrangement where he has to see his former wife and former student together living in marital bliss while he is like in debt and his life is ruined. Why would he do that? Only because he's taking a pleasure in the humiliation and the pain of this person that he manipulated. There's a triumphant feeling of I got you and I'm going to drag you through the mud and I'm going to subject you to this pain and I'm taking a satisfaction from it. And I think that's really what bothers us. If you, if you really look at the story, what bothers, what's the most painful about the story is not that the student ended up taking the wife away from the husband because maybe the husband and the wife were not so well matched if this happened. You know, maybe it would, he would have been better off to not have that, you know, be married to that lady because maybe they weren't meant for each other for whatever reason. What makes it so terribly sad is the last part of that, that the way that they resolved the issue of the debt was that the student insisted that the former husband see him enjoying a happy life with his former wife. That he wanted that pain, he wanted that humiliation that was part of his enjoyment. He enjoyed the suffering of this person. And that's something that is, you know, that kind of a sadistic attitude was what broke, was the straw that broke the camel's back, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. It's a very powerful story because it's obviously a story that illustri- illustrates an extreme and all of the stories that the Gemara brings are meant to illustrate extreme behavior and then it says, oh, at that moment Hashem decreed that the Beit HaMikdash was going to be destroyed, but it doesn't, it's not about what, what one individual decided for the entire Jewish people that the Beit HaMikdash should be destroyed because of one thing that they did. What one bad apple in the bunch is going to destroy the whole Beit HaMikdash? It doesn't make sense. What it means is this might have been an extreme example, but it was symptomatic of the way that people were treating one another. It was symptomatic. It wasn't so unusual. It was maybe a, uh, you know, it was quantitatively more, but not necessarily qualitatively worse than what everyone else was doing in the society at that time. And that's why the Gemara is saying this event was the straw that broke the camel's back. Not because that one guy, that one bad, there's a lot of bad actors and bad people out there that do all kinds of nasty things. 
and selfish things, sadistic things, hurtful things. There are people like that. The whole society, the whole world has to be destroyed because of individuals like that? No. But if they're representative of what's going on in the society and they are emblematic of the kinds of values that people are okay with, are tolerating, are embracing, so then it's really, there's a sickness in the society that has to be cured. And I think that's really what the Gemara is saying. But this, the, the, the image of that couple really, it's like an image that speaks a thousand words. Like just the idea of taking pleasure and finding fulfillment, selfish, egotistical fulfillment in somebody else's ruin, in somebody else's humiliation and destruction and pain. And we know that the rabbis tell us that the Bet HaMikdash, the second Bet HaMikdash, was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam, because of baseless hatred. The first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed for three things. It was destroyed because of idolatry, because of immorality, and because of bloodshed, murder that occurred during the times of the first Bet HaMikdash. So when you hear those three cardinal sins, the worst sins, basically the sins for which a Jew is supposed to give up their life, rather than commit idolatry or killing another person or committing immorality, okay? When you think of that and then you compare it to sinat chinam, hating another person, it seems like a ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous contrast. I mean, one was destroyed because of the most heinous crimes that we recognize in Judaism, okay? Actions that you're supposed to sacrifice your life before doing them. And then the second Beit HaMikdash, which actually stood for much longer than the first Beit HaMikdash, that Beit HaMikdash was destroyed just because people didn't get along and they hated each other? Seems like quaint reason for destroying the Beit HaMikdash. But there's another question that, we get, that really takes us to the heart of it, which is, what does Sinat Chinam mean? Have you ever hated anybody for no reason? Sinat Chinam means free hatred, okay? That doesn't mean you're getting a discount on the hatred, you know? What does what what free hatred mean? It means for no reason. Sinat chinam. For no reason you, get, you hate a person. Has anybody here ever hated somebody for no reason? No, right? It doesn't exist. You always have a reason. In fact, everyone that you've ever hated, you've had a very good reason for hating them, I guarantee you. And if I asked you why you hate them, you'll give me a list, probably not only just of one thing. There'll probably be many reasons that you hated them. Is there such a thing as sinat chinam? Free hatred, meaning it, it, it doesn't have any basis? Is there such a thing even as sinat chinam? It's hard to imagine what that would be because you could, I've never met a person that said, I just hate that person. I have no reason. I just hate them. If people really were like that, then I could understand why the society would fall apart, but nobody is like that. Everyone has a reason. Everyone has a rationalization, a justification for why they hate another person if they do. So what does it mean to hate somebody for nothing? What does it mean? For this, we need an important insight of the Rambam. The Rambam talks about taking revenge on other people. And there's a prohibition in the Torah that says, do not take revenge and do not bear a grudge against another person. What's the difference between taking revenge and bearing a grudge? Many of you probably have learned this before, but just to review, what's the difference? To take revenge means somebody comes over to you and says, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? And you say, no, I don't want to lend you my lawnmower. And then you go over to their house and say, hey, 
Can I borrow your lawnmower? Mine died. And they say, you didn't lend me yours when I needed it. No, you can't have mine. That's called taking revenge. Okay, meaning the person was hurt in a certain way. And then when you come back to them, they hurt you back the same way. That's called taking revenge. What does it mean to bear a grudge? Bearing a grudge is much more subtle. Bearing a grudge is something many of you probably wouldn't take revenge because it's too obvious. Right? It's too embarrassing to do that. That person did something to you and you do something back to them. It's so petty. But, take, but, but bearing a grudge, I think many of us are tempted to do. What's bearing a grudge according to halakha? How do we define bearing a grudge? Much more subtle. You went to somebody's house and said, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower or whatever. Whatever it was. They, they say, no, absolutely not. Go away. Few months later, their lawnmower bre- breaks. They come over to your house and say, "Hey, you know, I know that I didn't lend you my lawnmower and all that, but my lawnmower broke. Can, can I borrow yours? I know you got a new one. Can I borrow yours?" And you say to them, "You know what? You were a real jerk when I needed a lawnmower. You didn't give me your lawnmower, but I am a nice guy. I am a classy guy, and therefore you may have my lawnmower because I'm not that kind of a low life like you." See? That's called bearing a grudge. Why? Because even though outwardly you did the action you were supposed to do, you're still holding on to that feeling that they hurt you by not giving you the lawnmower or whatever it was last time, right? Because you have to mention it. And you're doing an action that looks like kindness to the other person, but actually, but in reality, you're shaming them by giving it to them, right? You're shaming them because you're saying, I'm doing this, because I just want to show you, you are a loser and I am a great person. Right? So, so really, you're not being such a tzaddik. Why it's so bad and it's so subtle is because you say, what do you mean I gave them my lawnmower? What do you mean I'm not a nice guy? He's not a nice guy. I'm the nice guy. But the fact that you mentioned that and you use this as an opportunity to push the person down, that's why it's called bearing a grudge. So the Rambam says both of these things are very, very bad Qualities, And he says, why are they bad qualities? And this is what I wanted to get to because I think it's so profound what the Rambam said. As he says, because to a wise person, to a person of wisdom and understanding, all the things that people get upset about and they take revenge for and they get offended by, all of these things are meaningless. All of these things are insignificant. They're not really important. It doesn't really matter. You're not going to remember them in a week or two from now. And even if you did, you shouldn't. Because all of these things are transitory, momentary, material things. They're not a big deal. They're not really significant. They're not earth-shattering. 99% of the things that people have done that have upset you you realize are not really that big of a deal. Somebody cuts in front of you on the line, somebody cuts in front of you on the road, road rage, all these things. It's all nonsense. Now, those people who really harm you in a significant way, that wouldn't be sinat chinam, I don't think, if you're upset at them. But there are most things that people get in disputes over, that people fight over, that people are offended by, that people take revenge for. They're insignificant from the ultimate perspective, the Rambam says, they are heaven, they're meaningless, they're empty. That's what the Rambam says is the reason. So the Torah wants to teach you the right attitude. Don't take these things to be so significant. Whether a guy lent you the lawnmower or not, what do you care? It's just a lawnmower, it's not important. 
whether the person said something or did something that offended you, your ego is such a big thing, you're so important there, your ego is so fragile, you have to care what this guy said about you, forget about it, it's not important. Why is it such a big deal? And all of us have experienced people who are just not nice. I remember I was a kid, I was probably, I don't know, 16 or 17. I came to some synagogue, was visiting my friend, invited me for Shabbat, we went to the synagogue, I never forgot this for some reason. I don't remember who the guy was, but I never forgot this because it was so shocking to me. They had a Sudash Lishit in the, in, the, in the synagogue. They had a Sudash Lishit. There was an empty seat there. I, sa- I, I saw somebody, you know, there was a guy sitting there and there was an empty seat. And I was being polite. So I said, oh, excuse me, do you mind if I sit here? He said, yes, I do. <laughs> I'm like, what? I was shocked. I was like, I thought he was joking. He's like, I told you, yes, I mind. Do not sit here. I'm like, Okay. I still remember it because it was like gratuitously rude, you know? I was like, for no reason. Like, I don't even think anybody sat there after it, you know? But like, but, but it's not important. I don't even remember who the guy is. If I saw him, I wouldn't know him. I, you know, it was, it was decades ago. The point is there's some people that are just not nice. They're just mean. Now, if you carry that with you and you're upset, oh, I'm going to take revenge on the guy. What good does it do? Is it really that big of a deal so the guy didn't want me to sit in a certain seat? Maybe I got better egg salad on the other side of the table. I don't know. <laughs> What's the big deal? You know, it's not important. The things are not significant. And I think that's what it means, sinat chinam. What it means, sinat chinam, is not that there's no reason. It's that if you really understand what's important, there's almost never a reason. Because the things that really count are not the things that get us upset. And the less petty we are, the less importance we attach to those little things, the more harmonious our existence with others becomes. Because we don't get ourselves attached to those things. The things that, oh, the person said this to me, they looked that way to me, they, they, you know, uh, you know they, they, they didn't do this for me, they didn't do that for me, or they did this for me, they didn't do... All those little things, we just let them slide because we know that ultimately they're not significant. Like the Rambam says, all of these things in the world are ultimately not significant. In that way, I think, that's how I understand the idea of sinat chinam. Not that it's no reason from your perspective, but that your perspective is what we're trying to tell you to uplift. We're telling you to make your perspective more mature. The Torah doesn't just tell you what you feel. It tells you how you should feel. How you should feel is you should feel that those things are not important and we should train ourselves to realize that those things are not significant, that those things are not worth getting upset about, not worth, not worth resenting people over, not worth letting it eat up at you inside. Like there's an old saying that says, you know, when you, when you have anger towards another person, it's like allowing the person to live in your head rent-free, right? That's the old saying. That's what it is. The person's still bothering you. The person really did a number on you because they bo- they're bothering you now, but they don't even remember what happened probably. They don't even remember. They said some idiotic thing or they did something that was hurtful. They don't even remember because they're probably a callous, unfeeling person anyway. And you're walking around carrying that baggage with you from place to place in your head. For what? Why? It's not important. So that's what it means, sinat chinam. Sinat chinam means choosing your battles. Is it really worth it being upset about this thing that the person did? Let it go. Sinat chinam is allowing us to have division, hatred, resentment, anger, because of something that isn't really important. And making a bigger deal out of something that it needs to be. And coming back to what we... So therefore we can kind of see in a way 
why Sinat Chinam is so fundamental. Because on the surface it seems like, how can you compare idol worship, adultery and murder, to hating each other for no reason? How can you compare the two things? One sounds like a psychological disease, like you hate people for no reason. And the other one is like really big sense. How could you compare the two? But if you realize that, no, what Sinat Chinam means is that you're attaching too much importance to things that are insignificant. It's almost like a type of idolatry. It's almost like a type of idolatry to be like that. To attach too much importance and significance to things that are only transitory, that are fleeting. That's what always comes between us. That's what always divides us. Whether it has to do with emotional uh, offense that people take, whether it has to do with monetary things, all of these things, none of them do you take with you after 120 years. None of them are of the ultimate significance. None of them have any impact on what really counts in life because the only thing that counts in your life is your knowledge of Hashem and your character and the, and, and the good deeds that you do. That's the only thing that matters. Everything else is insignificant. If it's not getting in the way of that, then you haven't been harmed. If it's not getting in the way of that, then nothing's been taken from you of any significance. And that's really how, if, if we had the right values and understood that, then our society would be and our communities would be harmonious and peaceful and cooperative communities without division and without resentment and without any kind of conflict because we would understand what's really worth fighting for, what's really worth uh, investing our energy in. And the, that's why the famous story about about the convert, the potential convert, who asked Hillel, what is the number, can you tell me the entire Torah on one foot? Hillel said, sure. He lifted up his foot and he said, what is hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. The rest is commentary, go learn it. That's what he said. Now why would he say such a, again, such a quaint thing? What is hateful to you, don't do to anybody else? Seems like the most basic rule of civilization and society not to hurt other people. But he's saying something much deeper than that. He's saying that when you really see the big picture, you see that we are all essentially the same. When you really see the big picture, you see that the other person's suffering or the other person's struggle, the other person's needs, and the other person's success are just as important as your own are just as valuable as your own. And therefore you treat another person, when you look in the eyes of another person, if you're able to see yourself, there's, a, there's a, also a saying like that. If you're able to see in every person basically a reflection of yourself, you see that we're all essentially the same. We're all Hashem's children. We're all creatures of God. How can I lift my hand against a creature of God? How can I hurt or harm someone created in God's image, someone who's a child of Hashem, someone that in Hashem's eyes is precious and of infinite value. How can I do that? If that's the way that we look at one another, then we have risen above our pettiness to such a level that we're able to really become mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh, really a holy nation that's worthy of Hashem's presence in our midst. That's the goal of the entire Torah, and that's what, Rabbi, that's what Hillel was saying. That's the essence of the Torah. And that's why the prophets, they always link. All the prophecies link idolatry, selfishness, and social justice, basically, for lack of another phrase. But basically, the idea of charity and fairness and taking care of the poor, they link all of these elements together. 
because idolatry is a is a, a way of elevating what is physical, what is material. We take a physical thing and we make it divine. And therefore, because we're making a physical thing divine, we're elevating the concrete and the transitory and the, and the created above the creator. And when we do, and that, if we're doing that, it comes from a sense that also we are somehow greater and more special and, and distinct. In other words, the idea of idolatry is a self-centered idea. It's an idea that I can create a God in my own image and that God has a special relationship with me and that God is exclusive to me or to my group and not to any other one. But that's the root of idolatry. But recognition of God and monotheism is the idea that no, Hashem is transcendent and everybody stands equal before Hashem and everybody is equally precious before God. That idea changes the way we look at society because that means that the needs of the poor and the rich, the powerful and the weak, everyone stands equal and of equal importance in the eyes of God. Whereas Sinat Chinam is, oh, if that guy offended me, they committed the ultimate transgression and I'm going to hate them forever. As if my feelings are the center of the universe. But you don't know what that person was going through. And you don't know who that person really is and what that person's struggles are. You, you have to see them as a creature of God just like yourself. And rise above the pettiness and the smallness to see the big picture. That's really what the rabbis are saying with their message of Sinat Chinam. And I think that's really what they're illustrating in the story of the master and the student. That at the worst level, at the middle level, at the medium level, we put our own petty concerns and interests at the center of our focus and we come into conflict and we develop hatred and resentment against each other over them. At the most extreme level, we take pleasure and enjoyment in inflicting pain and humiliation on others for our own vindictive or sadistic reasons. But a nation that's worthy of having Hashem's presence is a nation that sees the big picture, that recognizes that when they look at another person, they see the image of God in every single individual. And they recognize that all of our needs are equally valuable and precious to God and that nobody should give any precedence to their own petty interests over anyone else's. And if you're able to do that and rise above the smallness of yourself, then you're contributing, you're taking us one step closer to the ultimate redemption. I just want to close with one story that I heard. It was about, many of you might have heard it, I think it was a famous story about a... uh, a Holocaust survivor, actually. This Holocaust survivor, when he was in the camp, so at one point, one of the big shot Nazi residences was hit by a bomb. You know, when the Allies were starting to close in towards the end of the war, and they took, of course, their slaves, the people who were in the concentration camps, to go clean up the rubble and fix everything and all that. And so these emaciated, you know, starving inmates of the concentration camp are going through all this rubble, and one of them happens to come upon a re- pet rabbit that the, Nazi, that the Nazi family had. And in the pet rabbit's cage was like some rotten lettuce in there. Okay? And this inmate was starving. So he took the rotten lettuce and he ate it. 
And he brought the rabbits, and then he said, oh, look, the rabbit survived the bombing. It's good. The rabbit survived. He was trying to put a positive spin. He didn't think they would care about the lettuce that was in there. It was rotten lettuce. He said, what did you do with my rabbit's lettuce that was in there? You ate my rabbit's lettuce. So what did they do? They beat him, whipped and beat him mercilessly because he ate a little bit of lettuce, the starving guy. Now, when the camp was liberated, a lot of the Nazis, you know, they fled the scene. They fled the concentration camp. They left their weapons behind. They left everything. This guy and some of his friends grabbed some guns from the, you know, from the camp. And they went and raided this house of this Nazi, probably to get some food. Who knows what? They went in. They were looking for a vehicle, ultimately, because they wanted to be able to get off the grounds of the concentration camp. They walked in, and a lady was there. And they're holding a gun to her head, and she had a baby. And she said, please, I have a baby. Don't shoot me. And the guy had a gun pointed at this woman. Now, I don't know what you would do. I don't know what I would do. But this is a person that just a short while ago had me beaten for eating a piece of lettuce when I was starving, and I have a gun aimed at them, and they, don't wanna, they still don't want to help me, but they're holding a baby. What do you do? And the guy put down his gun. He couldn't. He didn't do it. He didn't shoot them. He didn't shoot the woman, he didn't shoot the baby. Even though she lied and said they didn't have a car, they did have a car, they found it. He went back and got the keys from her. He had another chance to shoot her, he didn't do it. And he told the story decades later. And he was proud of what he did. He said, at that moment I had a chance to reduce myself to the level of one of them. And I didn't do it. I, I, I decided to be a human being. I, I, I had to live by my moral principles and I wasn't just going to kill somebody in cold blood in that moment. And so he didn't do it. And, and that, to me, whether you would do that or not, whether I would do that or not, I'm not sure how I would feel in that moment. I don't know. I would never judge somebody who would act differently in that moment, actually. But what it illustrated to me was a person who was actually rising above any material concern, even a legitimate concern. He rose above it for the sake of his moral principles and because he recognized that that would compromise his humanity to behave like that. And I think that's, again, an extreme example of heroism. But how many times are we in a situation where we can rise above a petty insult or an inconvenience or a mistreatment and decide to take the higher road, not to rub it in the other person's face, but to take the higher road because we recognize that ultimately all of those concerns fade by comparison to the ultimate reality, to the big picture, and that we can make the world a better place, choice by choice, decision by decision, action by action, creating a society that is harmonious, that focuses on what's really and truly important, that focuses on the big picture, and the things that we all share in common, our shared Judaism, our shared humanity, the things that, that foster unity and peace and closeness to one another and closeness to Hashem. And to be able this Tisha B'Av to look at ourselves honestly and say, what are areas where I'm petty? What are areas where I know I'm attached to certain things and I'm petty and I treat others with a certain pettiness? Or I don't give them the same benefit of the doubt that I give myself. I don't treat them with the same consideration and compassion and fairness that I would afford or expect for myself. 
And if we're able to improve that, take a few steps in the right direction in those areas, I think that's a few steps in the direction of the Mashiach coming. And now, more than ever, I'm biased because I want all of you to bring the Mashiach so you join me in Eretz Yisrael as soon as possible. And I would like to close with that, that Bezvan Hashem will see all of you. This will be the last Tisha B'Av and we'll all be together in Yerushalayim Yerach Kodesh next year. Amen. Amen.